Weren't we fed last night? We were fed the Word of God. Hallelujah, and we appreciate that timely message. When I talked to Bishop Osborne about coming and speaking to us, I knew that this setting I had to have for me personally. He's an incredible gifted teacher when it comes to leadership and ministry, and, uh, and he has been a help to the apostolic movement and uh, investing in young ministers and older alike. And so would you stand with us one more time as Bishop Osborne comes, and let's thank the Lord for the Word of God here today. Praise God. Obey the Lord. Yeah, you're being kind now. You may be seated. Thank you so much. I actually enjoy this. You probably noticed that by how long people can go. I won't say myself, but preaching is a art form. I'm working on it. it. Takes me a long time to ever. I mean, people put messages together very quickly, and I admire them to be able to do that. But it's it's a time-consuming thing for me, and uh, I never was very smart, actually. wasn't good in school, and uh, so it, and I never had a mentor, never had anybody to help me, so, because uh, I was raised among men who were sermon graveyards. They buried everything they knew with them. They didn't share anything or give you anything or help you or give you any kindling so you could build your own fire, you know, they just took it all to the grave with them. I purpose I was never going to do that, so I love to, I love to uh, share what little I know about. Have you, have, you, have you noticed in the Bible that you're not in there? You ought to look at it sometime. Look your name up. <laughs> you ain't in there. Was it just an oversight, you think? Maybe just. But what he has given you are examples, not you're not in there, I'm guessing. The Bible says, whatsoever things are written aforetime, they're written for your learning. You're supposed to be learning. That's the idea behind the book. He didn't write everything in there that happened from Genesis to Revelation. He didn't put everything in there. But whatsoever things he did put in there were written for, written for your learning. That with you the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So whatever is in this book, was put in there intentionally. It wasn't just an accident because he left some things out. Even as Jesus, John said about Jesus, if you put everything he did in there, I suppose the world wouldn't contain the book. And he wanted something you carry around with you. It wouldn't look like a piece of Sister Osborne's luggage. You have to wear one of them trust things around your stomach to pick it up, you know, because it's so heavy and got 12 wheels on it. It's got to be on a forklift to put it up in the plane, you know. You can have a Bible like that. So he said, we've got to leave some of this stuff out. You know, I can't put everything in there because it would, you know, you couldn't carry the thing around. So what, whatsoever things he did put in there, whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for your learning. They're not written for your entertainment. They're not written to put you to sleep at night. They're not written just for you to quote to other people. They were written for you to learn. You're supposed to learn something. See, that's the beauty. I'm working on a sermon right now called Beyond the Parking Lot. Because sermons don't get much further than that sometimes. Now, teaching does. Preaching is a very emotional thing. And emotions don't last very long. They can dissipate pretty quickly. That's why beyond the parking lot is pretty important. Because unless you have a sentence that is memorable, Later on, they'll say, I remember when you preached Brother Osborne's back in that camp meeting, back in whenever, you know, and I remember what you said. It's one sentence. You mean I studied all that and put 13 pages together, single space, number 12 font, and the only thing you remember is one stinking sentence? That's just about it, though. There's not much of preaching gets beyond the parking lot because it was an emotional thing. As soon as the emotion dies down, you know, <laughs> it don't get much further. Now, teaching is different. Teaching is to touch you intellectually, not emotionally. Because we don't really expect you to get all emotional over teaching. It's, it's up here, trying to touch your intellect. 
Because once you learn, you can't be unlearned. Once you have been taught, I mean, I haven't ridden a bicycle in years, but if you brought one in here, I have all the confidence in the world I can get on it and ride that thing right out in the parking lot. I might get hit by a car and I might crash into a tree or something, but I'm sure I can, because I learned how to ride it. Once you learn how to ride it, you can't unlearn it. So teaching is an important part of it because you're supposed to learn this. And you don't hear many young men say, well, I'll grow up, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a preacher. Well, you better have some good sentences then because that's all they'll remember out of your teaching. You know? yes, <laughs> this is from my 50 years of pastoring. Uh, teaching is an art form to be able to teach. The Bible said Jesus Christ was called a teacher who come from God. He come from God as a teacher. That's what the book is about, learning. It's about learning this book, not just being entertained by it. Because this is about other people. It's not about you. It's about other people. It's easy to criticize other people, you know. But what if they put your life in a book and it become the bestseller? Yeah. If I, well, I don't, I don't want mine in there, I promise you. I'm glad he looked over me and didn't didn't say, I'm going to put something Osborne in there. I'll tell everybody what not to do and how to behave. And <clears throat> but the Bible is full of examples. Even Jesus Christ was our major example. You know, people that, that, that things happen to them when they've never been taught. I can go to a church and preach, and I've been to a few of them, and I can pretty well tell whether people have been taught well or not. Because if I say manna, and they got that question, look on their face, look like that RCA dog, his head cocked sideways, you know, and what's that noise coming out of that pipe over there? You know, they don't even know what it is. They don't know, they don't even understand it because they don't know what manna is. You know, if you've got to stop and explain manna, your sermon's going to be pretty short. Maybe that's the idea behind it, you know. You've got to explain everything about the Bible because they haven't been taught very well. You know, but teaching is, a, is a, an important part of our lives, and people have been taught well generally speaking, succeed well. They do well in living for God because they've had good teaching. But you, for good teaching, you need examples. You need people who will live examples in front of them. Not enough just to tell people to do it. You have to live examples. You know, the preaching of the Word of God, you're only looking, excuse me, I'm just meandering, but the, the preaching of the Word of God is not that complicated, really. It really isn't. You know, you're, you're trying to get to a place where people will say four words. What? Shall we do? That's your objective. So preach for three hours, but you're trying to get to that point right there. What shall we do? Four words. And it doesn't take a lot to answer four words. Peter answered four words with 29 words and two commas. One sentence, 29 words, two commas. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 29 words to answer a four-word question. It takes 10 seconds to preach it. <laughs> That's why we go for two hours. <sighs> Once you get to that point, what shall we do? Stop. Don't go on. Because you've got where you want to be, what shall we do? Then you tell people what to do. But then he says, with many other words, did he exhort them self-saying, exhort them saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. And it takes 29 words of obedience to save you from sin because Jesus did most of it for you. But it will take more words than that to save you from your generation. With many other words, many other words, he said, save yourself for this generation. It'll take a lot of Bible teaching, a lot of counseling, a lot of preaching, a lot of advice, a lot of seminars to get you to save yourself from this generation. Because if you'll obey those 29 words, that'll save you from sin. I'm not, I'm not discounting these 29 words. I'm just saying, Jesus did most of it for you to begin with, died for you. And if you'll be obedient to those 29 words, it will save you from your sins. But it'll take a lot more words than that to save you from your generation. A lot of more words than that. That's why you need to be in church. These examples that we have. Do you have any, do you have any uh, Canadian geese around here? Canadian geese? You either do or you don't. Yeah. You have some Canadian geese. Yeah. You notice that they don't, they, don't, they don't call them Muncie geese. They call them Canadian geese. That's where they're from. You know. you know, the Canadian geese are the only migrating fowl that 
that fly by sight. They're a big bird, so they have to avoid predators. All, you never see another migrating bird go overhead. Hummingbirds all migrate, but you don't ever see them. You know? They can fly all the way, they fly all the way across the ocean without stopping. And their little peanut bodies can store enough food in there. They don't have to stop and refuel. Now, Canadian geese is a big animal, big creature, and they fly by sight. The thing in Canada that gets them to migrate is, is the weather changes. It gets cold, and there's a low amount of food. So it triggers that inner bell inside of them. They need to get out of here. So they get up in that V formation, you know, and they fly. But they have to stop and refuel. So they'll stop off in Indianapolis. That's one of their primary stopping points, evidently. Stop in cornfields, and, 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 and they eat and refuel. But then the weather's nice. They stop on one of them 70-degree days, you know, and, and there's plenty of food, plenty of corn, plenty of things to eat, you know. So they all take off again, except a few don't leave because the weather didn't trigger their inner bell to get up and go. They got plenty of food. weather's nice. So they just hang around. Then they have a clutch of, rather than taking it to Mexico, they have a clutch of little goslings. And then they have a clutch of little goslings, and they think they belong here because they're in a position to where they don't know how to get home and they don't know how to get to where they're supposed to be migrating to because they don't have an example anymore. They fly by sight. They fly by roadways, by landscapes, by rivers, by that sort of thing. And when you don't have anybody that knows the way, they're stranded here by a generation that left them. So they're the most pathetic species on planet Earth because they know they don't belong here. So they will get up and get in a formation and honk like they're really going someplace until it dawns on them that nobody knows the way. So they circle around a few times. They're right back in the cornfield over, at the, over there at the pond at the cemetery, you know, because they don't know how to get home. And they have no idea how to get back to where they're supposed to be migrate and have their babies at. So when you see a, one of those geese pecking around and fooling around in a city somewhere, they are the most pathetic, abandoned creature because they know they don't belong here. They just don't know how to get home. And that's that. So now you know that if you're ever abandoned by a generation, that you'll be stranded wherever they walk away from you at. And you won't know, you'll know you don't belong here. Everybody knows they don't belong here. The rank of sinner knows he doesn't belong here because when they die, they say he goes to a better place. Where is that better place? I want to know where sinners are going that's better than where they are here. But they all want to go to a better place, yet they don't know how to get there because they've been abandoned by a generation that walked off and left them with no knowledge of how to get to where they need to raise their young and no way to get where they could go home. So they get up and honk and get in a V formation, and then they just circle a few times and they land again, and they do it every year. Their kids do that. Their offspring does that because they've never been taught how to get home. Sad commentary on a generation. I wish I could make all that work into what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I know that... Uh, I'm bad with sticky notes. <laughs> Jesus Christ is our great example as to how you're supposed to live, behave, live and move and have our being in him. You know, Christ living gives us examples that we should, in 1 Peter 2 and 21, that we should walk in his, in his follow his steps, you know. We've got a great cloud of witnesses around us, you know, uh, but he is the author and he is the finisher of our faith. Uh, he says, Sodom and Gomorrah was given to you as an example. And don't do like them. Don't behave like that. So this book is supposed to be learned because in it are examples as to how we're supposed to live our lives and how we're supposed to behave. Because health matters. That's what I'm supposed to be talking about. Health 
matters. Having an example so that you'll be healthy in your experience and your walk with God. First Thessalonians, the great apostle Paul wrote in 5.23, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. Holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're going to have a healthy church, you're going to have a healthy home, you want to have a healthy ministry, you want to have a healthy spirit, a healthy soul, and a healthy body, God wants to sanctify you wholly so that your body, soul, and, bo- and your body, soul, and, and spirit can be sanctified. Sanctified meaning to make holy, to declare that something belongs to God, to set apart from the profane and the unclean, to yield your life, its passions and purposes to the Lord God. He wants everything there is about you to be dedicated to Him. If you want to be healthy, your soul, your mind, your body has to be sanctified, has to be set aside for his use and his use only. God takes that seriously. He's not going to have you horsing around. He won't have you running around on him, and he will not play second fiddle in your life. He wants it all or nothing. It's all the way or no way. Holy means to declare something belongs to God. It's complete in its extent. It's amount, it's time and degree. It's all of a thing. It's all together, complete to the end. He wants, it comes from the word telos. Telos, as we get the word telescope. Look through a telescope at a point you're aiming at. And the point that God is aiming at is he'll have you lock, stock, and barrel. He wants everything there is about you, your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit. He wants all of that to be dedicated to him. He won't take a piece of it or a part of it or half of it. He wants all of you. If you're going to be healthy, he wants all of that. It comes from this word that means God is aiming at something, telos, telescope. You know, a telescope puts out peripheral vision, eliminates everything, and it focuses on one thing. And that's what God is focused on in your life, that he takes, he takes pride in that which has been sanctified to him. I don't know if a $300 fishing pole, I do know, I I fish. A $300 fishing pole will catch more fish than a $25 fishing pole. I I doubt it, you know. Will a $300 reel reel in more fish than a Zebco 33? Well, I doubt it, you know. Is there a pocket knife on the planet worth, you know, $3,000? You get a case, canoe, you know, with pearl handles? Is it worth Will it cut better than an old-timer? Yeah, probably not, you know. Then why do you, why does a watch? Spend $3,000 for a stinking watch? Does it keep better time than a, than a, than a $3 watch from Walmart? Yeah, probably not, you know. It probably don't keep no better time than a KCO. Walmart's got a watch for $3, guaranteed for life. You go send it back, they charge you $8 for shipping and handling. Well, you'd be better off to go buy another $3 watch, you know. It's guaranteed for life, though. Will it keep better time than another? No. Then why do you do that? Does a Louis Vuitton carry stuff better than a coach? I know you look cooler with Mr. LV on there. But it don't carry no more stuff than shopping bag. Then why do you do it? We'll tell you. It's the pride of ownership. You take pride in the fact that you own that. That's mine. It won't catch more fish. But the pride that I have in having that, owning that, is why I spend that kind of money for it because I'm just glad it's mine, you know. And were you worth dying for? Maybe you think you were, but the rest of us don't think that you are actually worth dying for? Then why did he do that? The pride of ownership. For they shall be mine, saith the Lord, when I make up my jewels. I'm just proud that they belong to me. I know they don't look like much. They don't have much, but they're mine. 
That's why I sanctify them. I want all of them. I want all of them. I know I'm not worth it. But because I belong, see, he takes very good care of what belongs to him. You think he doesn't? You think he doesn't? He, well, he doesn't care about me doing that. He don't care what I look like. It's on your heart anyway. He don't care about sanctified. He don't care about set aside. He don't care if I'm really that holy. I can be kind of holy. It's like you can be kind of pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You know, you got to, you, 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 you got, you got, I think I just crossed the line. I'm not sure. I didn't think that through good. Now I forgot where I was going with all that mess. When, when Nebuchadnezzar plundered Jerusalem, he brought all the valuables back, all the silver, all the gold, all the valuables back, brought it back to Babylon. Then he fooled around, talking about what he had done, how great he was, the kingdom he had built, and God said, I had enough of that mess. So he turned him into a donkey and sent him out to graze in the fields like a, like a, a donkey, a cleaner word. And his hair grew out like feathers and his claws grew out like an eagle's claws and he's out there grazing, chewing his cud. Finally came to himself. Then Belshazzar, his son, comes along. He's another moron. God said to him, you saw what I did to your dad. You know, you act stupid. You want to be all this, that, and the other, you know. And you're going to tolerate that because he went and got the vessels, the sanctified vessels, the clean vessels, the holy vessels. And he brought them out for all of his entourage people that he invited the kings and princes. I didn't get invited, nor did you. And you wouldn't have got invited. He invited all the hierarchy out, you know. And he brought out them golden goblets. They poured wine in them. They got the praising the gods of silver, the gods of gold, the gods, all the different gods being praised and drinking. Suddenly a hand come riding on the wall. Da, 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 da. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. This night, the kingdom will be taken from you. The Babylon, the greatest kingdom ever exist on planet earth was brought down and and the king of it killed that night one reason he took a sanctified vessel and drank wine out of it because god takes serious things that belong to him and you don't take stuff that belongs to him and tarnish it and treat it with disdain make it it's a holy thing god don't want a holy thing and he brought down babylon he brought it to its knees and killed the king over a goblet. Do you think he don't care about you, how you act, how you behave? If he would bring down a whole kingdom, not just a little kingdom, but Babylon, he brought it to its knees over a goblet, a glass. But it was a sanctified glass. That means it belongs to me, and you don't mess with my stuff. You don't mess with what has been set aside for me. So he takes you serious. He takes your decision serious. Takes how you behave yourself. He takes it serious because you belong to him. He said, I want to sanctify you holy. Everything about you is sanctified. He don't want nothing unclean in your mind. He don't want nothing unclean coming out of your mouth. He don't want you putting on anything unclean. He don't want you acting in a way that's unclean because you're a sanctified vessel, and he takes it serious because he takes pride and ownership. I'm proud that you belong to me, and I don't tolerate you belonging to anyone else. Thank you, Jesus. In the book of Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. This is, this, is a, this is a cool verse here, if there is such a thing as a cool verse in the Bible. The 15th verse. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Butter and honey. Talking about the Savior being born, Jesus Christ. He's going to be born. He's going to be born of a virgin. Because first woman that went around a man in order to have a baby. And this baby, his diet is laid down for you. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
No prophet had greater insight than in, 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 and revelation concerning the, the promised Messiah than did Israel. He certainly hit a crescendo when he declares, I love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a city man. He was not a country bumpkin. He, he was a man, he had a great, that's why it's so hard to read sometimes because he had such a vocabulary. That's why you like to read about David because David never went to school. He never had a mentor. He never sat at the feet of anybody except sheep. He wrote his poetry to sheep. That's why you like to read it because it's simple. It's not complicated. If Isaiah wrote some poetry, it'd be so convoluted you wouldn't enjoy reading it, you know. It has some big words in it, you know, and a lot of commas and question marks. And, and when David writes something, that's why you like to read Psalms at night when you go to bed. You don't like to say, well, I think I'll read some Isaiah tonight. You don't sleep a wink, you know, trying to figure it all out. What does he mean by that? Well, you know what David means. He don't have a wide vocabulary. That's why he repeats himself. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. Da, 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 da. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. Da, 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 da. Oh, that men would praise the Lord. He don't have another way of saying it, you know. He don't have that big a vocabulary, so he repeats himself a lot. That's why we love him so much. He's just not scholarly. He's not this great, not being formed to the highest degree of accuracy. I would hesitate to articulate for fear of diversion from the true course of rectitude. I don't want to go to sleep with that. Give me some David. Give me four or five words. Let him say it over and over and over and over again, and I'll sleep like a baby. So Isaiah has written this. There's a long way to go just to get to that, but... No, no prophet had greater insight than Revelation than, 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 than Isaiah did. When he said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. He not only tells you, then he interprets his own words for you. God would robe himself in flesh and come in the form of a baby. The mighty God who was from everlasting to everlasting and set upon the circle of the earth and heaven was his throne and, and, and the earth was his footstool. The same God, Isaiah said, is going to grow up. Now I can't hardly fathom that, God coming down and growing up. I mean, he said, I think I'll robe my flesh and come down and just grow up. <laughs> and he fills all of eternity. There's no place that God is not. How are you going to grow up? How are you going to get bigger? I grow up as a tender plant out of dry ground. I don't want any advantage over any other child. I want to grow up. I want what it feels like to grow up. What it feels like to start out in one place and keep going to another place and another place and another place. Because I have always been I am that I am. I am self-sufficient. I am connected to nothing. I have my own, I have my own origin inside of me. I did not come from anything else. I am what I am, who I am, all self-contained in me. But I'd like to grow up. Now, I'm glad my growing up's over with. I don't want to go back. I really don't. I mean, I wouldn't mind being a few years younger, but I don't want to go back to growing up again. I didn't enjoy much of that. Well, I did. I played a lot, but I didn't learn much. God is going to come down, and he's going to grow up through all the stages of life. In this process of growth, you know, he came as an infant. He's going to go through childhood. He's going to go through adolescence. He's going to go through being a teenager. He's going to go through just being young all the way to adulthood. He's going through all the stages that what it means to grow up, to become this, to go through the whole adolescence, to get to the place where you're not here or there. You're just kind of in between somewhere, trying to figure out who you are and what you are and where you came from and where you're going. All those things that it takes just to grow up, you know. It's hard growing up. A, a tender plant. I'm not going to be like a weed or like a thorn bush, like something you can't kill. I, I want to be tender, and I want to grow out of dry ground. I don't want to have a lot of things. I don't want to have a lot of fertilizer put on me that promotes false growth. I, I don't want to be in a, somebody's garden where they tend to me and keep everything. I just want to grow up like a tender plant out of dry ground. Because he was both God and man, you know. He is the root and offspring of David, which makes him human, connected to the earth. But he is the bright and morning star. So he's connected to the celestial and to the terrestrial. There's a God of the celestial, and there's a, there's a glory of the uh, uh, terrestrial. They both have two different glories. 
But you see, in Jesus Christ, they put both glories together because he is celestial, heavenly, and he is terrestrial, connected to the earth. So both glories were blended together in one, and he's going to grow up. That's amazing. That, that, that's, that, that baffles me right there, you know. Then to look at you and think, you're some kind of treasure only because you've been sanctified to be holy in him. And he takes pride in your ownership. And he watches you grow up. Paul said in the book of Hebrews, whether you believe you Paul wrote it or not, I do, but he doesn't me. For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So in this growing up, he was tempted in everything that you've ever been tempted with. You say, well, I don't read about that in the Bible. I told you to begin with, he didn't put it all in there. He put that in there to tell you there ain't nothing that you've gone through that he hasn't gone through in order for you to grow up and be a man, grow up and be a woman. He was tempted in all points. He was tested. He was tried. He was enticed. He was lured. He was hated. He was baited. He's been attracted. He's been aroused. He's been promised pleasure at all points in every step of his life, in every age, to every degree of development, during infancy, childhood, adolescence, teenager, young adult, maturity, and manhood. He went through every step of that and was tempted in every point that every man or woman has ever been tempted with in order for him to just grow up. All the tests of selfishness. I don't read anything about Jesus being selfish. He wasn't selfish. Well, then he wasn't tempted. Because your kids are born selfish. I know you think the sweetest things ever come to town. And they, they think they're beautiful. And, and maybe they are. But you're going to find out they ain't all that after a little while, you know. They don't want nobody pulling their, try to take her toy away from them. You'll find they're selfish or not. Try to take it away from them, give it to one of the other kids, you know. They're born selfish. They're born selfish. They're born, this is mine. I don't want anybody else to have it. You know, they're not born to share. That has to be taught. It has to be taught to share your toys and share this and share that. You know, the trials of peer pressure. I know it's a great thing because you all want to be loved and liked and everything, and you're going to be all that, you know. You're going to find the girl that, that's looking for perfection, and, and boy's going to look for a girl's going to look for a boy that's, you know, he's the perfect boy. But the chances are the boy's looking for a perfect girl, and you're not. So you're looking for a perfect boy, and he's not. So, you know, there you go. You have to buy, some, you have to buy into somebody that's not perfect, you know. And you'll find out about that as soon as the honeymoon's over. See, the honeymoon is about the bride, or the groom's parents gave them this fermented honey that was, had become an elixir. And they get enough of it to last them for 30 days, which was the moon goes through its cycles in about 30 days. That's why it's called honey moon. It's to get you through those first 30 days of your marriage because you stay intoxicated for those 30 days because you've been drinking that honey moon. You've been drinking that elixir. But one of these days, the elixir's going to be gone. And you're going to look at him, and she's going to, you're going to look at her, and you're going to think, what did I do, and who did I marry? Because you're, you're sober now. You sobered up because the honeymoon's all gone. No more liquor in the cabinet. You'd be taking your finger trying to ream a little more out, get it just to get you through another night, you know. Because she comes down, she's got spoolies in her hair, got that Chanel house coat on, got, got, got shoes on with rabbit ears on or something coming down. You think, she don't look like she did during the honeymoon. She had that flowing gown on, looking like all that. He comes down with a T-shirt on, about three sizes too small, big old hairy belly hanging out, you know, and hair looked like he combed it with an egg beater. You're wondering, what on earth did I marry, you know? We'll take a look at each other. There ain't no more honeymoon. Honeymoon's over now. It's funny because it's real. See, he's been tested. He's been tested at all points. Like as we are, you know. You know, the arousal of sexual development, you get them hormones released, you know. And, and Well, it's a different story right there. You get them hormones released and, you know, they've got a shot. They can give a doctor suing a hospital because they have a shot they can do you, they give you. Right at the point that you're going to go through puberty, 
they can give you a shot that will cancel that and you won't go through puberty. You won't develop into a woman or into a man. They can stop puberty in its tracks. That's what we're living in today. But this, the, the arousal of sexual development is a part of our lives. It's the trial of, you know, to, to you want to experiment the bait of style and trends and conformity to the world. The desire for acceptance and friends and, and success, peer pressure. The attraction and promise of pleasure. The thought of trials and, and rebellion against what you want. The Bible said that Jesus Christ would grow up and he would go through all of those trials and tests and all through that anything that you have experienced, wherever you are right now, whatever you're going through right now, Jesus Christ has already been there. And he has been tempted in all points like unto as we are, yet he was without sin. And he wants you to be holy. That's the focus of God in love with you. He's focused on keeping you sanctified belonging to him. You belong to him, everything about you. Butter and honey shall they eat. They may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. We as parents know that you can't live on nothing but butter and honey. I don't care if you have put on a few pounds. You've eaten something besides butter and honey. Maybe too much butter. So it must just be a, a metaphor. Something that, you know, like when somebody says, well, it's just got me over a barrel. Really? That's a metaphor. It's not really, you don't literally over a barrel, you know. Somebody said, I'm drowning in debt. Then you need to get a snorkel or something, you know. But we understand you're really not drowning. You're just in over your head. That's another metaphor. <laughs> I'm in over my head in debt, you know. So I'm drowning in debt, you know. The early bird gets the worm. Yeah, but if the worm hadn't got out so early, the worm wouldn't have gotten it, you know. So... I guess that plays either way you want to say it, you know, but it's just a metaphor to get up early and get going, you know, and you'll, get, you'll, you'll be blessed with all that, you know. Uh, uh, when a man has a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It's kind of a metaphor for a person, you know. You give them something and everything else looks like what they could beat on it with, you know, because everything else is look, just, it's just a metaphor. And, and Jesus Christ, this, this butter and honey deal, is just a metaphor. It's symbolic of the fact that, 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 that well, Ezekiel kind of explains it a little. In the day that I lifted up my hand to them and bring them forth out of the land of Egypt to the land that I expired for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of the lands. So the milk and honey is simply talking about the glory of the lands of the promised land. It has a lot of glory. They remember the, 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 the cluster of grapes they brought out of there was looked like bowling balls hanging off the vine. Had two men to carry them out. I'd love to have one of them grapes. I love grapes anyway, you know. Talk about sweet as sugar. You got a grape you can bury your face in. I can't even imagine what a watermelon looked like. It's like a Buick or something, you know, hanging big, you know, and, and glory. But he said the butter and honey just represents the glory of the land. It's the best of the land. It's everything the land could produce. It's just a wonderful part. It's a metaphor. It's, it's, just, it's just a wonderful place. It, well, you know, it took Ezekiel to describe it to us because David couldn't figure it out with seven words. So he had to say it's the glory of the land. It flows with milk and honey. But that's just saying it's the glory of the land. It's the beauty and spectacular of the land. It's natural. It's pure. It's, it's healthy. It's beneficial, you know, to, to your mind, your soul, your body. It's beneficial to that. It offers strength and vigor. It's, it's wholesome. It's balanced. It's proper. It's in, the, in the promised land, everything is free from disease and weakness. It's not processed. It's not man-made. It's, it's the glory of the land. It's beautiful, pleasant. It's good for you. It's richest and sweetest. It's healthful and nutritious. It's not junk food. It's not snacks. No colas. No chips. This baby went on a strictly controlled diet. He will eat only the best and the choicest foods. This promised child must develop a discriminating palate. A selective appetite is a prerequisite for this child if he's going to grow up and suffer the temptations and the trials and tests that come along with growing up. He has to have a discriminating palate. He cannot just eat everything that's given to him. You know, you, you, you've taken down your kids this way. I'm, I'm pretty sure, maybe not all of you, but some of you that have children. You know, you take your straw and put it down in your Coke. Put your finger over the end of it and bring it up and give them a little. They spit it out first, you know, it's too strong. We had some boys come from Africa. They were going to come and sing for us, three boys. They had perfect harmony. 
wonderful. So he took them out to eat, took them to Steak and Shake, and they told us, don't give these boys any chocolate because they will never have it again. So don't create an appetite for it. They won't miss what they've never had. So don't give it to them because one of the boys' mothers had boiled a mouse for this boy here because his throat was sore and made him drink the broth off of it. But he couldn't eat chili. For Pete's sake, you can eat the broth off a mouse, but you don't like chili? He spit it all out, you know. I'd have done some spitting all right, but before I got to the chili, that, that other mouse tail would have been all I could have handled. This, this child is going to be on a strict diet. Nothing but butter and honey. Nothing but the best. I'm not going to put Coke, you know, because before long, you put a little Coke in their mouth, they spit it out first. Next thing you know, they see the Coke's coming. They start screaming and throwing their hands in the air, you know, because they don't want no straw now. They want a kid's cup. They want to let you wear that home when they throw it over the, it's run out, you know, and the, it's just whatever you create an appetite for, you just want more of it then, you know, so it doesn't matter what it is, you know, because an addiction creates an appetite for itself. That's what the meaning of addiction is. It creates an appetite for itself. It's not like eating popcorn makes you want a Coke or, or, or what have you. This, when you have an addiction to something, it doesn't want something else now. It wants more of the same because you're addicted to that. It creates an appetite for itself. And he said butter and honey is all he's going to eat because I want his palate to be so discriminating that he will refuse. If you put anything else in his mouth, he will refuse that. Did I say mouse? put anything else in his mouth he will refuse it let me tell you what the word refuse put that book down you don't need to write you're smart enough hey, get, you, get, get that picture right there you get the poor. The word refuse means this. Pour me a little in there. That'd be enough. The word refuse means to pour it back. To pour it back. You refuse it. See, you can't refuse something that hasn't been offered yet. You can't pour back what has not been first poured out. I can't pour back because he hasn't poured anything out yet. If people are saying, I'll never do that. I'm never going to go there. I'll never leave my husband. Then why do one in three divorces happen to married couples? doesn't matter whether you're saved or not. If you don't keep yourself clean and you don't have the guts and the backbone for everything that's poured out to you, you don't have what it takes to pour it back. Because you can say, I'm never going to do this, I'm never going to do that. It's meaningless to say that because it has not been offered yet. You can't say you're not going to do it because the offer has not been made to do it yet. You've got to wait till the offer's made. Then we'll find out if you're sanctified or not. Can you pour it back? I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to smoke. I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to run around. I'm never going to leave God. I'm never going to backslide. That's rhetoric that has been played a million times. And it is meaningless for you to say that. It has good intentions. But the fact is, backsliding hasn't been poured out to you yet. Leaving God hasn't been poured out to you yet. Leaving your husband or leaving your wife has not been offered yet. So don't say what you're going to do. You have all good intentions, but intentions won't keep you together. When the offer is made and the temptation is there, you've got to have what it takes, a discriminating palate. I don't eat that. I don't drink that. I don't go there. I don't behave like that. And pour it back. You can't pour back what has not been poured out. Jesus was going to have such a discriminating palate that he would refuse, that's what it says, he would refuse the evil. 
Refusement when he was offered. Not that he will never be offered that, but it will be offered to him. But he refused it because his palate was so educated and so gifted to just take what was butter and honey, just the glory and the best, that when you put something in his mouth, his palate was so discriminating that it understood that would not be good for me. And he pours it back into the vial that the devil offered it on. You're going to be tempted. Oh, yeah, it's going to happen sooner or later. And it has a lot to do with who's tempting you. It's to whether you pour it back or not. If you're a young lady, you say, I'm just going to keep myself clean for God until the Camaro pulls up. Got some guy in there all muscle-bound, blonde hair, blue eyes. Car's got a little loud to it, a little rumble to it, you know. He's got the top down. He said, come over and get in. I'll take you home. Now we'll find out. Now we'll find out whether you can pour it back or not. Because it ain't about saying you won't go with anybody that's not saved. That's easy to say that until something's poured out for you that's not saved. Then we'll find out if you're healthy or not. Can you pour it? Do you have a discriminating palate? Will you eat anything? Will you go with anybody? Does it matter to you? What if they're driving some three-legged dog and they pull up with smoke coming out of the tailpipe? They got one of them things hanging around, look like a pine tree hanging around the rearview mirror to cut out on the stink of the car. And he wants you to get in. I said, I'll turn that guy down. I'll wait for a better car to come by. You've got to have a discriminating palate. Jesus is not going to eat anything. It goes beyond a statement of your faith. Hannah said, I don't know even where I'm at. I've lost, I've said mouse a while ago. I don't even know where I'm at, all right? Hannah's prayer was, this is what Hannah said. She's a woman, by the way. Talk no more exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of thy mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God don't care what you say. It don't tip the scales at all. Say this, say that, say the other. It doesn't weigh anything. It's just air blown over your vocal cords. For by him, actions are weighed. So when it gets poured out to you, you can say, I ain't never going to drink that. I ain't never going to do any of that. But don't talk like that because you're being, what did Hannah say you were? Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. Let's see how... You act when the offer is given that's not butter and honey. Because by him, the only, only thing that matters to God is can you pour it back? Because if you can't pour it back, you can talk all the talk you want to talk. But if you can't put it back where it came from, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Because by him, actions move the scales. Action gets weight to it. Talk weighs nothing. It weighs nothing. You know, you're going to have in your life, you're going to have a lot of teaching. Now, just bring this. You're going to have a lot of stuff in your life, a lot of teaching. And hopefully you will store that up so that you can get to that place so when it's poured out for you, you can, you can simply refuse it, which means pour it back give it back to offered it to you. But you can't give back what is not yet offered. So you can say you'll never do it. Because this is a book about people. And there are people that never intended for their lives to turn out like it was. There are very few people walking on planet Earth right now that they are the people they planned on being. They never planned on being. The man they have become was not the man they wanted to be. They didn't plan on being that man. Folks are in prison, 
life sentences. If you talk to them, they'll say, I never planned on this. This is not the man I meant to be. But they didn't have enough teaching to pour it back. And so they drank it. And now your choices, you make your choices, then your choices make you. So if you don't want to be that man, then don't make those choices because they will make you what you don't want to be. There's not a... Ask somebody, are you the man you meant to be? Ask folks in here, are you the man? Did you start out to be the man you are right now? Is that what you start out to be? Nobody starts out to be divorced. They want to have happy marriages. You know, nobody starts out, man, I hope we get a divorce pretty soon. I don't know. But nobody starts out, nobody starts out with a plan on divorce. He said, I got to save my money. We may have a lawyer or something, you know? Nobody, nobody, that's not the man you meant to be. There's not that a woman, and when she gets married, he carries over the threshold, you know, and they, they plan it on, they just plan it on being great. It's going to be wonderful, glorious. I love him. Yeah, I love you. I love him. Yeah, he loves me. He loves me. All that's talk. Let's wait till something's poured out for you. When you and your wife are having a little problem, secretary says, could we just want to have lunch with you? And she understands you better than your wife does. You better pour that back. You better pour that back. Because you're flirting with something now. You say, I'll never do that. I ain't going to go no farther than that. Once you get it, once you start drinking it. I can read you right here in the Bible. Where when you start drinking it, it turns to drunkenness. You may have just taken one drink, but it won't be long. You'll crave more and more because you create an appetite for it now. Now you have an appetite for it, and it's hard to pour it back when you have a thirst for it because thirst turns to addiction because you create an appetite for it because you didn't pour it back. So if you want your marriage to be healthy, you pour I'm not saying you will never be tempted because temptations come to everyone. He was tempted in all points. Temptations will come. You just have to pour it back unless you want to become the man you ever intended to be, unless you want to become the woman you never intended to be. Pour it back. Pour it back. Refuse it. Refuse it. Or you won't be healthy. Your marriage won't be healthy. Your body won't be healthy. Your church won't be healthy. Why is it that church people backslide? Why is it that sometimes pastors backslide? What is the problem, I tell you? What is the problem? Something was offered. They didn't pour it back. Now they have an appetite for it. Now they get drunk on what before has turned out to be one sip that was never poured back. You go from thirst to drunkenness. Jesus had to go through this. He did this. When he was led of the Spirit, I'm, and I'm close, led of the Spirit into the wilderness, there to be tempted. 40 days and 40 nights. And afterward, he hungered. Yeah, I guess so. I hate hominy. Whenever we have a fast at church, just fast something every day. I, I tell my wife, I'm fasting hominy. I don't like it anyway, you know, so it's not a big deal for me, you know. Fasting hominy. I ain't going to eat hominy all day. And I might go a week. I'm going to... I might go a month fasting. Because it ain't hard for me to pour hominy back. <laughs> Greasy french fries. That's another story there. You know. Not too easy to pour back. But it's not healthy. I don't know whether hominy's healthy or not. I've never eaten enough of it to know. I just know it just tastes like eating styrofoam pellets or something. It's not going to have much... Don't have much to me, I'm just not very good with it. I guess you put enough stuff on it, they say it's okay. You got to doctor it up a little bit. You got to put butter and honey on it and everything else to get to go down. Jesus led the Spirit. Let me, let me close. He's led the Spirit to wilderness. I just go with the first one. Lord, come today. If you're the Son of Man, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Well, there wasn't nobody there to know. No, so. It wouldn't have been a big deal. You know, it's because after I'm if I fasted 40 days and 40 nights, a brick would look like butter. It would look like, it would look like bread. You know, everything looks like bread when you're hungry, you know. You can smell a donut shop a mile away, you know. You go shopping, you got $600 worth of groceries in there because you was hungry. Don't go shopping when you're hungry. 
buy everything in town. Some things I can't have. Being diabetic, can't have no cookies. You have no potato chips. Can't have nothing fit to eat. I like them, uh, I like them, what's them ice cream little sandwiches, you know? Uh, what are they? Klondike bars. You got it, buddy. Klon- I love them Klondike bars. Oh, man, I'd die for a Klondike. <laughs> so I got me some and put them in the cart, and I hid them. But Sister Osmond couldn't see them because she filters through. She's like, she's like an agent at the airport, you know. She find everything in your luggage. <laughs> so, I said, who put them Klondike bars in there? I said, I did. I want them. Can't have them. You have one of them other things, sugar-free, nothing, you know. I said, I don't want them. I want a Klondike. You can't have them. So she put them back. Then I like them pinwheel cookies, you know. They've gone up so expensive, man. They're like $8. You get like eight cookies or something, you know. But I like them pinwheels. So I hid some of them, and she said she found them. You can't have them pinwheels. Have some of them with that sugar alcohol in it or something. I don't want that. I don't want to get liquored up. I want a pinwheel. I don't want no alcohol in there. Sugar alcohol. You don't eat sugar alcohol, do you? No, I'm glad for you. So, anyway, I put me some potato chips in there, a little bag. And she found them. She's got a nose like a bird dog, man. She could, she just, you seen them dogs smell your luggage? Well, Sister Robin, if you've got anything in your bass cart, she can smell it, but you're not supposed to have it, you know. I got so mad at her. I said, listen, I didn't marry you to sanction my diet, you know. I got so mad at her, I climbed down out of the cart and went out and sat in my truck in the parking lot, you know. You treat me like a baby. Treat me like a baby. Where was that? You're supposed to keep track of me. Where am I at, right? You lost, you lost me at the Klondike aisle, didn't you? Jesus, he said, turn these stones into bread. I am closing. I really am. You don't know. Turn these stones into bread. And he could have, and I might have done it. But he poured it back. When he was starving to death, his stomach was growling like a lion. He hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You tell me you wouldn't be hungry? Can you pour it back when it's offered to you and you have not eaten in 40 days or 40 nights? Can you pour it back? He was tempted at all points. But he chose to make bread. He could have had one desert meal. And satisfied his flesh. But he chose to make bread the expensive way. That is it. The kernel has to fall to the ground and die. Because the devil is trying to figure out a way where you can't escape the pain and the sorrow and the dread. I can make it easier for you. Just turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, I'm going to become bread. (laughs) Hallelujah. But the bread's got to fall to the ground and die. It, the sickle's got to be put on, cut out of the land of the living. Then it's got to take it to where it's going to be winnowed to get the husks off of it. Then the woman's got to come. And she's got to take it to the mill and grind it into powder. Then she brings it home. She makes a loaf out of it, puts it in a hot oven, and makes that bread. Jesus said, I could make a meal for myself and satisfy my flesh. Or I could make, I'm not going to make cheap bread. I'm going to make it the expensive way. And he not only made bread, but the Bible said bread corn is bruised. If you're going to be corn and you're going to be bread that can be fed to others and satisfy their hungry, you will be bruised in order for that to take place in your life. Aren't you glad he poured it back? And he said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. I'm the bread that comes down that will make you healthy. You'll have a healthy marriage and a healthy life 
and a healthy church and a healthy ministry and a healthy mind and a healthy soul and a healthy spirit because you eat the bread that was made the costly way. Everything that's not apostolic is cheap bread. It's just cheap bread. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. It's just cheap bread. Won't you stand with me? Let's lift our hands and love Jesus just a moment, would you? That he suffered in every point, tempted in every point, because he would come down and he would grow up and go through exactly where you are right now. Thank him that he loves you because you belong to him, and it's the pride of ownership.